Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. We are back from the summer break with a new series and some exciting guests, the first of whom joins me now in the Spectator boardroom. So my guest today is a seasoned Fleet Street hack and editor. She was deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph under Charles Moore by the age of 35. She went on to become the first female editor of the Sunday Telegraph, eventually going on to take the reins at the Evening Standard. Most recently, she has been in the news for her editorship of Radio 4's flagship current affairs show, The Today Programme. She took on the role in 2017, a period which saw Theresa May's premiership face disaster, Boris Johnson become Prime Minister, a government boycott of the show, and most recently, a global pandemic. She has now stepped down from the role. Looking back on her time there recently, she reflected on suggestions that the BBC has lost a sense of balance. She said, the BBC is not just a broadcaster, but also an attentive employer in the age of the employee activist. The result is a sense of entitlement among younger employees. They expect to have their view of the world on air. So to discuss that and many other things, I will now introduce her. My guest today is Sarah Sands. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, on this podcast, we like to begin by just rewinding the hands of time slightly to what you were doing before you entered your current career. So you grew up in Kent, attended a school there. Would you describe yours as a happy childhood? It was a pretty happy childhood, actually. The school, very respectable now, but at the times was a kind of centrinian, so I just did hockey and boys, I think. So I had a very good time. Punk came along, I think. My father who was working at the BBC at the time and managed to get me onto Top of the Pops, I think, with a, under the time of Jimmy Savile, actually. But uh, I think I probably wasn't young enough. So you, you don't remember so meeting the man? <laughs> I don't remember meeting him. Yeah, it was a happy childhood. I've um, married two men from Yorkshire and they were both very sniffy about Kent, but actually it's... A... And your father used to run the Brussels office at the BBC. So was current affairs something that was discussed much at the dinner table, um, you know, was it part of your upbringing? It was a bit. His um, big friend was Charles Wheeler, who was um, still, when I think of the BBC, I sort of think of him and those discussions they would be having about civil rights and so on with rather precocious children. But I think I was also sort of naturally willful. So, actually, for instance, because he was in Brussels, I refused to learn French, which would have been quite a good opportunity. So I think I was both interested in current affairs and sort of stubbornly uninterested. Now, you attended Goldsmiths University. I suppose it's seen as a university that is more on the left, especially these days. So I wondered, because we have lots of um, guests on this podcast who talk about their student politics days, and often that involves Oxford and Cambridge. So was there a student politics scene at Goldsmiths? and were you involved in it? It was really punk, is what it was. So I chose Coldsmith because someone described it as screaming tyres rather than dreaming spires. And it was very new to me. I was from Kent. And, uh, and suddenly, you know, sort of South London and punk, and I met my first husband, I think, in, who was a student at um, Central School of Speech and Drama in about the first term and so I'm not sure that I was involved in anything very much after that I'm afraid but all these things I regret now you know so I'm now actually an honorary fellow and when I went back I did think it was terrific to see 
just the sort of you know pride and ambition amongst the students. I'm very sorry that I showed no evidence of either. Let's get to journalism. Now, at what point did you decide you were interested in a career in journalism? Because as you say, often, in a way, if your parents do something, the default can be that you don't want to do anything like what they're doing. So, so I wonder if your father having that role encouraged you or did the opposite? Yes, no, I sort of fell into it. I think you can't assume any sort of career strategy at all about anything. So I think I fell into it because I didn't know what else to do. Actually, I liked the idea of publishing, but mostly it was punk bands. So I then I think I saw a job on local newspaper. So I did a sort of weird commute back to front that I lived in London and commuted to the Seven Notes Chronicle, where I did law and administration and shorthand, how's yours? So it was all quite sort of old-style journalism. But loved it. I love local news. I love local journalism and still think it's, you know, one of the things the BBC should really concentrate on. Any particular scoops from your time there as a as There was a always news fog journalist? on the M25, I remember. Actually, it was the M20. It was particularly bad. But there was, uh, there was one or two horrible murders. But you know, mostly it was fog and obviously the um, vegetable shows on a Saturday where there was always that... Um, Rain failed to dampen the spirits, I think, is always the introduction. And you moved from the Seven Notes Chronicle to the Evening Standard. And while you were there, I mean, I don't know what the very first job you did, but you took over London's diary. Now, I'm a former diarist. My first, I think, job was at Mandrake for the Telegraph. But can you talk us through, I think, to lots of people who do not have inside knowledge of what it's like to work on a social diary, uh, it sounds like you just go to endless parties and have a lovely time. But actually, <laughs> what was your experience of it? There was that, that sort of odd thing, because you're young and a bit broke, it is how you eat, and, and isn't that right? You know, so, oh, yeah, um, my diet was canapes exactly. and champagne exactly. I, didn't, I never had to learn to cook because that's really what, what we what and we, friends always getting the freebies from the events as their Christmas and birthday that's parents. right that's right so it was a bit of that and it was it was Londoner's diary so at the time it was sort of actresses and bishops I think changed you know slightly the cast list I don't think we had tech entrepreneurs in those days and I guess what it what it taught you was to get into a room without being thrown out was I find a helpful over the years um there was a diary editor i was particularly fond of called rory knight bruce i don't know if you ever came across him who literally (laughs) hid in cake cupboards and um so there was a moment i think of salman rushdie and martin amos sort of throwing open the cupboard and just what do you and he just you know just sculpt out but that worked and crash any parties Probably, yeah, I must have done. And I think that's a sort of lesson, probably for the whole sort of imposter syndrome and everything else, that if you look as if you should be there, people may not question it. <laughs> yeah, looking confident. And I also think having a glass. And having a glass. Always. Is, is very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, then it, clearly you just left the event and exactly. you just need to go back in with exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. Probably less uh, hygienic in coronavirus days. <laughs> but there are no parties. Um, so from Londoner's Diary, how did you then move uh, to the different roles you held at the paper? Um, because sometimes people look at Diary and... I think there's lots of people who started off it and went on to have very successful journalism careers, but there aren't people who will look at it and say, oh, it's not particularly serious. 
no, I, I mean, actually, it was at the time the sort of city journalism of its day. You know, suddenly all city editors became editors. But at the time, sort of Max Hastings and Alan Rossbridger and I think Ian Katz was... You know, a lot of people actually did come from Darius. So it was a kind of riot. It was like a little spectator, probably. Endlessly badly behaved. But I was a reporter. I had been a news reporter, so I sort of did understand that too. And I think um, I then moved on to doing a sort of combination of executive roles. So sort of associate editor and comment editor was for a while on the on the standard. So, so I was on the standard quite a long time, about 10 years, I think, and then moved across to the Telegraph with yes. Charles Moore. And you've become deputy editor at the age of 35, which... I think it's very young to hold that position. I'm not just saying that so listeners to the podcast f- feel good. But also, <laughs> I, I just I just wondered, what is the newspaper industry like at that point? Because we often hear, you know, oh, we need more women in these roles. So did it feel a bit blokey or was it not something you really noticed? It wasn't really blokey. Not that I would call Charles Moore Charles a bloke. Blokey, yes, you know, as I said that. <laughs> and I think it was probably in a spectatory way they were used to having women around. You didn't sort of question it in a... You had to be a, a feminist, but you. But they did have women around. So I think it was just... And, and of, of course, one of my roles was to edit the column of Barbara Emile. So I was used to women of some power and different views. I think Janet Daly was there. Oh, Miriam Gross. You know, so there were some really sort of great women around. So it wasn't that it was anti-women. You just probably didn't talk about it. What was Charles more like as a boss? He was... Not blokey. Not at all blokey, a bit hunty. Um, So I had to learn a bit about that. But actually what was wonderful about him was that he listened. And he's a great kind of girl's best friend, actually, because you can talk to him about anything. He had the same academic interest in, um, you know, makeup as... Brexit negotiations, you know, he's, I've, I've never known. So, so actually, the, where I remember him, one of the, the people he employed was Trini. Yeah, Trini and Susanna. Yeah. Trini, exactly. And uh, so that was his hiring. You know, I thought it was a little frivolous myself. Um, but so he was, he, you know, he was brilliant to have around. And also he just did the sort of question why, which should hang over the whole of journalism, you know, was his even when it sort of veered on you know, were these the right questions at the time? But, I, you know, I remember being with him at the day of the death of Diana and so on, and he would still take, you know, rather sort of stern, you know, theological conversations about where she was and so on. It wasn't, you know, he was just always... Well, I, I still regard him as the person I, I'm most happy to hear from, actually. His name has come up in recent reports about a potential position of BBC chairman. Oh. Uh, <laughs> do you think he would make a good BBC chairman? <laughs> He's such an anarchist. because he did do a guest edit, or a Christmas guest edit, uh, where it was impossible, you know, that you just had to keep explaining, you know, that there is BBC guidelines. That So the thing he did in the end, which was very, very subversive, was to get straight anti-abortion propaganda onto the programme through, I think it was the a tribute to Holy Innocence Day on Thought for the Day. But everything else was a sort of, um, it made things as sort of difficult as possible. And the programme was, was very, very interesting. You know, a lot of people thought, and much more, much more surprising and thoughtful. You know, he had a, a really interesting piece about, you know, transitioning through very beloved relative. And so he did it in a much more interesting way. I think, you know, still... 
the great mistake and sort of sadness about the way that journalism sort of closed in in some way is that, you know, you miss the cross currents, you know, that I still think you can be several things, you know, just because you vote one way doesn't mean there are a lot of other characteristics that necessarily go with it. So maybe a pick for BBC chairman. Yeah, let's back Charles. (laughs) Charles for chairman. (laughs) It would be different. (laughs) So getting back to your career, you moved from deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph to become editor of the Sunday Telegraph, I think the first first female editor. (laughs) What's quite nice about interviewing someone who has had a very successful career is when you ask about things which perhaps were briefer, (laughs) uh, I I feel it's more acceptable. (laughs) So I just wanted, it was quite a short spell as the editor of the Sunday Telegraph. Um, There was a revamp, there's some backlash over that revamp. And in the end, I think that they let go of you. So when you look back at that period, I mean, do you regret any part of it? Or how do you look at it now? The letting go particularly was a a marvellous moment because they had just installed this very cool new internal messaging system they were very proud of and this was the day they were going to test it out which they did a little too early so it was actually before I'd gone that it was sitting up on the screens Um, but saying that you were there saying that I'd gone yes but did you did you know at this point no I had no I had no idea so Oh my God. But so there's technology so you, so you for you. Learned through a, through well, a I would think I was already. I think when you, I think when you're on a Sunday paper and you get a call on a Tuesday morning to go and see the boss, you kind of think mm, that's it. <laughs> but uh, I don't regret it. I think what I, I mean, I think I learned from it that uh, you need to manage up a bit better, and that some of the changes, you know, should have been more sort of evolutionary. You know, I sort of took that they wanted to change an audience from one thing to something dramatically different. And um, I think, luckily, I learned that before I came to the BBC because I could imagine the damage you could have done then. So I think, you know, I, I understand what happened and I sort of bear no ill will. You know, it was a sort of interesting lesson and it all turned out for the best. I think on the things that I did, it is interesting that once you have, which I do think is a bit of a lesson for women and in general about letting other people define you. So it was interesting. I remember a complaint from... Um, from one reader that I just did um, and, and one of one of my at that time many critics that I'd turn the comment pages into sex and shopping and I went and had a look to think well you know what did I do and it was Robert Harris writing about Pompeii I think that was the sex and then Stephanie Flanders on the sort of future of the economy including retail so that's the shopping so actually the idea of a sort of review section of essays and comment isn't a totally outlandish idea and I think that has remained in some form. So, but I think changing the masthead, you know, to, to I think that's that's always a sort of mistake. Just and it's one that you know people often make of oh let's go for something really sort of visible and sort of designy and just think why you know that was madness. Yeah, people get very attached to they do, and, and you know for good reason. Yeah. So I think always and again you know that came up thinking about the Today program. Go back to the first principles of what the paper is and it stands for, and don't attack it because some of it will make no sense. You know, the Telegraph it doesn't make sense as a name. You know, it's a what's the Telegraph now? You know, but if you called it the app or something, it wouldn't be the same. So I think just stick with things that have a sort of romantic, you know, historical resonance, even if it makes no specific sense. And go easy on the changes. Now, 
you had a successful reign at the Evening Standard, but I do want to get to the BBC. So, so, so we'll bring that back as we go. But I just wanted, so you're the editor of the Evening Standard. You also had Reader's Digest, which you get to. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, why did you decide to make the jump to editing a BBC broadcast show? Now, clearly the flagship current affairs show, so prestigious, but very different in some ways. So, so what made you decide to make that jump? I think because it was the Today programme, actually. My um, husband said, uh, we had a brief conversation about it, and I said, I, I think I might be going to the BBC. And he said, oh, fine, as long as it's not the Today programme. And I went, oh, it's the Today programme. Uh, so it would never have occurred to me. But actually, once someone says it, you'd think that would be so interesting. And I've sort of begun to think I know the Evening Standard and the um, I know what it's good at. I know the sort of strains of it. I think I've you know, given it a good shot. Can I think, five, you know, after five years, it was it was just the challenge of it. What was your husband's opposition to the Today programme? And, you, you know, when he said, uh, so long as it's not the Today programme, what was it about it? Was it the fact that it has so much attention? Or, I think but it was yeah. sort of scrutiny and ours. I think yeah. that's, the, <laughs> that's the issue. Yeah, morning alarms. <laughs> what is the process like for going for a high-profile BBC job like that? Do they tap you up? Do you get in touch when you get to final stage interviews? Are you all in a room going in and out, or is it all kept quite subtle? Yeah, the board. I think because it was maybe because I came from outside and so on that the boards were conducted in strange sort of basement in the Langham Hotel rather than sort of more openly. I think so. I think the board thing is probably how the BBC does it. I mean, I know it is. It's just that the, maybe the location and the timing was sort of slightly different. What surprised you when you started about the Today programme? It surprised me that, well, the construction of it is quite... In, I hadn't quite realised that bits came from different places. So, you know, news, the bulletins come from news and thought for the day, comes from the religious department. So the jigsaw puzzle of it. And then, of course, the programme itself is owned half by Radio 4 and half by News. And so it's a sort of strange, constitutionally strange. But I think that also, I think then to go back to how that sets the character. So it's it's a news programme, but it's not just a news programme. You know, it should also have that sense of sort of hinterland and ideas and discussion. It's not just coverage. So I think I tried to kind of work out a character a bit from, from its history. And I guess the other thing is just how hard those producers work. Um, that was a. If you're not doing broadcast, you don't quite realise the role of a producer, and they're saints. I want to talk about some of the political things that happened during that time, but um, I just wanted, starting off, you would you say it's fair to say that one of the things you wanted to do was to make not so focused on current affairs, or at least perhaps that's the wrong way of putting it, but bring in you know culture and other things to have more of a role on the show because I think it's one of the interpretations of your editorship. Yeah I think it was simply actually coming from newspapers you don't just have select committees and local councils on every story of every page so it was sort of interesting that some of the papers are saying it's outrageous you know there's an arts piece on there and I think but what are you doing you know that you treat and I, I did think culture again going back to the origins you know the great Robin Day who I think was behind the sort of vision of um the Today programme, you know, one of the first things he put in was something called the, the Review, which was the opera the night before. So I think that thing of it being a bit of civilization, you know, matters if it's a proper kind of civilised discussion. I think there's a strange thing which you, you um, also learn a bit about 
a bit of sort of unconscious bias in a quite interesting way. So I thought, for instance, the thing that got a huge amount of attention and attack was doing something on London Fashion Week, which is like a, you know, 30 billion business and so on. So when you do cars, everyone, because that's great, you know, because now we've got a man in a hard hat coming out of a factory and there are evil bosses behind him and everyone knows the score. I think they, you know, that they're, when it's sort of design and fashion... There's a mix of it's not a proper business. So there's a kind of puritanism too. It's, and it's sort of frivolous. And I think, oh, and isn't that funny? Would women be involved in this too? And I think that's something that you just pick up. So then it became, oh, she didn't know. It's because she doesn't know about news. And I thought, I have spent 30 years doing news. I think it's because I know about news that I can question some of the cliches of news because I recognise them. So that was an observation. You know, the other thing is that... Uh, gentle reminder to the BBC that lives aren't entirely decided by the state you know you can have bits of your life outside that one of the things that struck me and I think you can maybe tie it to some of the Sunday Telegraph criticism too is the concern has been this speediness by which people want to say you know it's dumbing down when you bring in uh, parts of culture or as you say things are important to the economy but aren't seen as the economy I wonder do you think there is a quickness to do that more when it's a woman in charge than a man i think there's certain sort of signals like the sex and shopping and so on that it do you realize it's a woman so this means and i think the dumbing down is hilarious. i always remember craig brown on the huge rather was it the bbc about whether they moved a program called one man and his dog and everyone said it's terrible dumbing down you went it's about a man and a dog you know <laughs> and in a, and strange again it's sort of dumbing down but it was a piece about Beethoven and an interview that people thought was tremendously sort of um, dumbing down was talking to Judy Dench about royalty. And I thought, oh, well, you see that dumbing down, you know, to me. <laughs> but actually the opposite. Um, and funny enough, I think one of the criticisms that was made that it was sort of rarefied, which I respect that as a criticism, but actually to me it was still an excitement of someone who went to a you know, screaming tires university and actually discovered a great reverence for learning a bit later that I always think of, of the sort of figure of David Blunkett, you know, in a blind school learning everything he could from the home. And I think that's a responsibility. So I kind of think anything that's good, you know, best that's said and thought in the world, I'd love to be able to showcase on this program. Um, now, one of the criticisms we heard more recently is the oh, idea. Another one. Yeah, <laughs> this one, uh, I think, a word that is used in relation to journalists also in the lobby, but bubble. You know, this is a yeah, yeah. this is a bubble show. Yeah. This is out of touch. This is metropolitan elite. And I think that although there's always a portion, I think, saying that about most BBC mm. shows, you know, quick to make those complaints. Where it seemed to really get traction was when you had Boris Johnson. A, his leadership campaign, but two, obviously becoming prime minister, then getting a, a majority of 80, and then a decision to not send ministers onto the Today programme because it is all the things I've basically previously just said, and that makes it irrelevant. So how did you find it at first? What was your expectation when it became clear that Boris Johnson was quite likely to be the Tory leader, became prime minister? Did you foresee that you were going to have these type of issues with him and his team that they held this view of the Today programme I just wonder at what point it became clear the issues ahead I think it was on election night actually I think I phoned up um, having you know perfectly good relations and uh, the uh, Downing Street press officer that day and said oh you know well done and who's coming on and um, you know good result for you and uh, it's nobody's coming on <laughs> and I thought, 
oh. <laughs> and uh, so that was a surprise. And it was strategic, you know, I think it was straightforward that they you know want to give the BBC a kicking and that's best choose a program that people have heard of basically you know because I think um you know there may be criticism of course there are criticisms um of of the today program but I don't think it um I don't think anyone else I don't think internally anyone thought of it as a sort of bastion of leftism it's much too big a listenership for that you know so you you absolutely have to keep it broad I think there was a there was a sort of in a way I would call a kind of misunderstanding of um what the show was for was one thing you know so actually it's there to do journalism not to do the government's bidding also the setting so one thing that I did actually as part of the sort of Rethian mission to get younger people in but without dumbing down you know was that we did quite a lot of stuff around the country we did it from universities but people could come from around so it wasn't exclusive to the universities so they took that as a sort of as an ideological stand that you're in a university I would just say it's where young people are and you can discuss issues you know free speech and everything else Um, and actually Joe Johnson came on to defend us rather passionately about that now I think there's debate to be had about how much listeners enjoy hearing politicians clearly there is a market others uh, quite enjoy having other discussions but it definitely seems to be the case that presenters or talent or journalists as uh, you suggested we should call them instead um, too good to be talent (laughs) they're proper journalists um, (laughs) do you like interviewing ministers so what is it then like when you have a situation where it's not just one day it's not just a week (laughs) weeks become months before a pandemic comes along and you're ultimately struggling to get anyone on the show do you feel personal responsibility do you feel under pressure and what do you do in that situation yeah I did feel personal uh, responsibility and it's then what you do about it so and what do you do about it that isn't a sort of caving in on proper democratic institutions so the suggestion I think from some people was that I should go and apologize and it's but you know, to apologise, you know, it's just, you've just done this sort of hostile act for sort of no particular reason. So what Is that I from figures in the BBC or outside, m- more outside, but I guess a little bit of inside murmuring of could you do a bit back channels? Could you, you know? So I said first, you know, keep calm and carry on, and then this gives us an opportunity to actually be a bit more sort of creative about the kind of people we've got on. There are world leaders available, business, we could do a lot more of that, you know, thinkers and so on. So it meant that you started to, you had to work harder, get a different kind of cast. And what was very rewarding about it was that the listeners loved it so much because it also meant that you slightly changed the way that you talk to people. So it was a little more analytical and sort of explorative. So it was a very harmonious period, in fact. Then COVID came along and I think um, the government was still boycotting it a bit and then it became sort of unsustainable. So I think we were sort of reconciled by you know, pragmatism, which is, sounds very good to me. I just wanted. Oh, to... I did try to make the the program go north. Was one thing that um, that backfired horribly. But apart from that, um, did the <laughs> staff on the program enjoy that suggestion? They loved me for it. I just wondered, do you think there's an argument that the BBC should take a more unified approach sometimes with these things? Because one thing I noticed, if you look at yes, leadership election, but also the general election. So, for example. Boris Johnson didn't come on the Today programme, but he did go on The World at One. We had Boris Johnson refuse to sit down with Andrew Neil, but did go on the Andrew Marr show. Now, there are lots of views at the time, but I wondered, I suppose as someone who 
has edited on the shows where you are, I suppose, getting the rough end of that. Do you think there should be more of a thing where the BBC says, no, you can't pick and choose what show? It's very hard, isn't it? I'm not sure I'd want to have to make that call because I, one thing is that the government, I mean, they don't have to come to the BBC at all. You know, that is a, one has to be realistic about the new world. I think you need to be careful that you're not doing sort of, as it were, giving soft options. So that's always the fear. But I think now it's sort of, you know, slightly broken from its moorings, the whole idea of which shows, you know, the, the, of exclusivity apart from anything else. So I think then it comes about, uh, to, you know, how good the programme is. But I think in a way that dependence on ministers. So I do, you know, I, I like those big political interests. I think they're important and they're central to the Today programme. But I think there was a slightly unhealthy relationship before of, um, which surprised me a bit coming from newspapers, you know, that at 6pm you get told who you're getting. So actually one thing that we have did was to loosen up the order a bit so that it's not necessarily 8.10 you can or you put something else first and so that there and actually 8.30 of course because of COVID and Lions becomes a much more central slot so the idea that there's an 8.10 and you will get you know the politician on it always is no longer necessarily the case and I think that's good I think that's been good for both of us actually and I just final thing on that and then we'll get to some final questions you wrote recently of your admiration for white van man and uh, talked about how often you get ideological staff and perhaps as a voice that the BBC doesn't get as much attention. So I just wondered how you square that just with the criticism that we were talking about earlier when people say, oh, it's a bubble show. Do you think there's been a misunderstanding of what you were trying to do sometimes? Yeah, I think it's back to sort of definitions that actually aren't necessarily true or thought through. You can just say them and therefore they become a fact. So I don't think it is a sort of bubble show. As I say, I think that everyone, you know, whichever university you went to, should have access to excellence. And that's pretty much my mission statement on the Today programme. And I think the other thing that I love about that young staff is that actually there were differences of opinion and it made it much more interesting. So I think people hear one thing. One thing, of course, I've realised since not being on the Today programme slightly to my um, shock is that people don't necessarily listen to the whole program <laughs> never occurred to me and so now I'm slightly dipping in and out you know because I'm commuting and going to Hawthorne around the corner you therefore might just think oh I heard one thing and that must be what it is whereas of course it was a perfectly orchestrated program which would have you know balanced throughout and would have a, a lot of um uh, so the mix was everything, you know. So I genuinely think that wasn't the case. And what do you think about the idea of the BBC being too thinly spread? Do you think that it should focus in? Because one of the reasons you talked about that you decided to leave is, you know, looking at cuts, it seems as though the role of an editor and being in charge of a show will be less of a unique experience to that show if you're sharing content. So do you think the BBC spreads itself too thinly? It's very hard for the BBC with this universality you know that it has to please everyone so do do it in that within the BBC there will be something for everyone I think the hard thing now is because there are generational differences you know is is the main thing so I wasn't at all attacking young people for uh, but I was just saying that you you got two views which are quite difficult to reconcile if you've got a sort of socially conservative older generation and a young generation who are 
um, you know, idealistic, and it's not actually unique to the BBC. I think you know, you're probably companies are finding that everywhere that it's quite hard to please everyone. So I think the thing about Tim Davy, I think it, it's good that he comes from a commercial background. I think he'll be good at finding money, and I think you know, commercialising some of the stuff the BBC does. Whether that then is some people think you know thin end of the wedge and it's a bit like the NHS you can't sort of charge for any of it I don't see why not you know and I do think that there are parts that are clearly public service and sacred radio for at the heart of that and there are parts that are much more commercial but you've always got these sort of contradictions so they you know is it sort of civil service or is it show business and that's why you get into all these sort of muddles about big salaries and everything is you know what's it for and I tend to veer on the sort of public service because I think you can just justify that that without it you would notice but you've got to somehow you know things have changed since since it began so like any of those sort of great institutions it has to reform you know and be sort of honest about itself and salaries was something you had to <laughs> uh, you came into when it became a very big issue when you edited the Today program so you had the perhaps unenviable task of breaking it to John Humphreys that, <laughs> that he was paid too much though it does sound uh, from a recent account like as though he took the news rather well yeah he, he absolutely agreed and you so slightly kind of wonder why we ever got into this position but you're looking at someone you know bless him on six hundred thousand pounds and at the bbc and then you know not just relation to other presenters but to those producers and so on so he knew it was totally article to, to be fair on him it did include the mastermind as well so sometimes those salaries are sort of packaged up. But it was interesting, that actually, what started the conversations, we were talking about Charles Wheeler, who was, he knew very well, and as I say, was my introduction to the BBC. And I said, you know, what do you think Charles Wheeler would think about, about the salary? And he, he said, yeah, you know, it's got to go. And I, you know, saw times have changed and that the, the BBC, I don't know, I just don't know what happened to the BBC. I don't know why they ever got into that. Yeah, I was wondering, because also... Um, as you said in a recent interview, you know, it's not just a gender pay gap. No. So, for example, you know, Nick Robinson earning £100,000 or more a year than Justin Webb. Why do you think we get into a situation where Nick Robinson earns £100,000 more? I think it's just how contracts were done. It may, may well be in his case that there were other things, you know, sort of going on. But I think because it was probably done on sort of showbiz terms or certainly on non-scientific terms or non-civil service terms, you know. So basically... I like you, I know you You know, think you're good, so I'm going to pay you this. But you've got to have some kind of for doing it. And if you're going to do those very high salaries, and I do think at the BBC, you know, I wonder why anyone really needs much more than 250. You know, it seems a good amount for a public service broadcast corporation. So yeah, I think if you capped those salaries, because also it's a different thing, it's that like you don't write for the spectator and think that you're going to be on, you know, pound a word or get £250,000 <laughs> exactly so in the same way you know it worries me that people think that they should go to the BBC for the money plus all the security and you know it's a brilliant sort of utopian employer but you shouldn't be in it for the money and I think also it changes the way the BBC looks at its role you know so that it's not just sort of always on the back foot and afraid of um, that someone who you recognise can go and there are no sanctions, so you can go and slag them off as much as you like. You know, nothing happens. But uh, it's rather marvellous. But that they have some sort of control of what they're doing and that they should really be there, you know, for public service journalism or creating new talent. When I think of those great comedy programmes like On the Hour and everything that came out, you know, they're brilliant sort of creation of talent. That's what they should be doing, not buying it.
And do you think the Today programme presenters, so we know that Humphreys took it well, do you think they all sense the same feelings in terms of why perhaps they shouldn't have such high salaries compared to Jesus? Well, now they're all on rather model comparisons, actually. And do they all take that well? They, I think it makes. I think people are happier when they feel, you know, that salaries are more fairly distributed. I think it makes better workers. <laughs> Quick final questions: Have you spoken to Boris Johnson about that boycott since it happened? Because he often seems very. When you meet him in person, when you hear accounts of people meeting him in person, he's very, you know, friendly and optimistic, and you know, people often leave thinking they've got jobs. So I, I can't quite imagine him talking about the hard boycott no I think his position would be that he was entirely unaware that there was a boycott and of course he would be coming on the program and then (laughs) finally um I suppose just from your whole career when you're looking back and you're going to Brightbury and Hawthorne that's quite an interesting role for me because that's about sort of trying to find and back British businesses particularly so that's economic patriotism is our new mission so it's a new chapter for you so when you now look back, I suppose, on the journalism career. What are you most proud of? Surviving it as long as I did. I think I was a journalist through a period of great social change. And it's great to see that newspapers are still there. You know. And finally, a question we ask everyone in this podcast, which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given? We asked Lana Shriver once what the best advice she'd been given was, and she complained that it was a boring question that you would get in a lifestyle magazine. So we're now going for worst advice. <laughs> it was um, how women should get on. And it's no cardigans, no smiling. And you ignored that. I've always worn cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sarah. And thank you for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.